Hi, everyone. Um, if you can stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Today we're reading from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of God. You can be seated. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Cameron. I am one of the pastors here as well. Super good to be with you. Um, I'm going to start with a weird question. Really weird question. Hopefully, uh, self-consciously, the answer is no, but you'll see where I'm going with this. Here's the question. Have you ever tried to start a religion? Yeah, weird, weird question. Weird question. Probably most of you would say, uh, no, 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 I'm not so interested in, uh, in cult leading. Um, but, I, so about a year, a year and some change ago, I read this really fascinating book uh, by the journalist, novelist, her name's, uh, her name's Tara Isabella Burton, and it's called Strange Rights. As I was reading it, if I recall, I, I feel like I mentioned it three or four times um, during sermons, so it was over a year ago, it was a while back. Um, but, but the book is an exploration of this incredibly fast rise of what she calls remixed religion. And in her words, um, remixed religion is, quote, actually, I think I have the quote up here. Uh, yeah, there it is. It's a religion of emotive intuition, of aestheticized and commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies. <laughs> a religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalist consumers and as content creators. A religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are, but that still seeks in various ways and in various and varying ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has. Meaning, purpose, community, ritual, so this, this thing, this remix religion, she says it, it trends most heavily among millennials, my generation, and among Gen Z, uh, but, but certainly other generations are not immune to its, its temptations either. Um, the hallmark of this remixed religion she's talking about is the idea that you really are the creator and you really can be the creator of your own custom bespoke religion. It's a personalized religion. Um, it's, to, to use her, her word again, it's, it's mixing and matching spiritual and aesthetic and experiential and philosophical traditions. So, you know, you like this little piece of Buddhism, oh, I'm going to grab onto that. I like this thing of sort of like internet culture, I'm going to grab that. Oh, I like this from wellness culture and kind of fitness stuff, I'll grab that. Um, maybe a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in there as well. Because um, Jesus is great. Everybody likes Jesus. But you kind of pull these things together, and what you end with is, is it's 
profound individualism, pure individualism mixed with consumerism, mixed with techno and sexual utopianism. Um, what else? Mixed with wellness culture, mixed with political activism, and mixed with the actual outright occult or occultism expressed in forms all along our sociopolitical spectrum. So don't, don't hear that and think, oh, that's something that, that people on the political left do exclusively. It's all across the spectrum. We make these little religions for ourselves. Burton estimates that over half of the US population would fall into this broad category. In my estimation, that what we're talking about is a way to become your own prophet, your own cult leader, ultimately your own god. It's a way to become your own God. What does it look like? Well, here's what Burton says, quoting her again. She says, if you've ever been to a yoga studio or a CrossFit class, ever practiced self-care with a 10-step Korean beauty routine or a Gwyneth Paltrow-sanctioned juice cleanse, ever written or read internet fan fiction, ever compared your spiritual outlook to a Dungeons and Dragons classification or your personal temperament to that of a Hogwarts house, ever channeled your sense of cosmic purpose into social justice activism, ever tried to biohack yourself or used a meditation app like Headspace, ever negotiated personal relationship rules, be they kink or ethical non-monogamy with a partner, ever cleansed your house with sage, ever been wary of a person's, quote, toxic energy, you've participated in some of these trends. She's not saying that every one of these things is a de facto religious pursuit. I, 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 you know, I certainly would not accuse anyone who, who does yoga or CrossFit necessarily of, of buying into a new religious system. That's not what she's saying. But she is saying that these are common hubs for kind of this, what, what, be, what becomes this quasi-religious pursuit, concocting and crafting this spiritual regimen that you're going to pursue. Interestingly, I would say, obviously, even before the pandemic set in, the same demographics where remixed religion is surging are reporting significantly higher rates of deep loneliness and depression. Um, so whatever is going on here, whatever is being pursued, it doesn't seem to be working. People are spiritual creatures. People are spiritual creatures, and I, but I and hopefully you believe that the proper answer to our spiritual longings is not curating religion like we curate an Instagram feed. It, it's longing for and finding a genuine transcendent truth that is beyond ourselves. Remixed religion might offer someone a number of things, but genuine capital T truth is not one of the things it can offer. Christianity, on the other hand, claims that God has revealed himself in history in numerous ways, but as like the scripture that was just read for us declares, by many prophets in many ways, but finally in Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, coming into human history. And if, if God has in fact done this, if he has in fact revealed himself in the world, it's the best news the world could possibly hear, but it entails that we become discoverers and, and appliers of his truth rather than creators of our own. If he's there and he's not silent, then we discover what he's revealed to us, we submit to it, rather than dictating to him what we would prefer. So, most of you in this room, I assume, are Christians. 
You've made a self-conscious, determined decision to follow Jesus at some point. Um, Nonetheless, how can we be sure that we're not similarly creating our own religion in the language of Christianity? Because one of the thing Bert, things Burton talks about a lot is, is, is Christians, people who identify as Christians, you know, many of them playing just as much into these same trends. Yes, yes, I take a little bit of Jesus, but I like this thing, and I like this thing, and I like this thing. And this thing, I li- this thing that Jesus says, I don't like that. So let's cut that part out. How do we know that we're not doing the same thing? How do we know that we're not distorting the truth? How do we know that we haven't let our beliefs about Jesus become secondary to ideology or politics or pop culture or ethnic identity or our family systems or traditions for tradition's sake or simply the whims of our own desires? That's a really important question. Or don't think about just you as an individual. Think about us as a little non-denominational Protestant church that's really not tethered to much outside of ourselves institutionally. How can we be sure that we as a church community are tethered to what Jude calls, in the book of Jude, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Things can and do get wonky, yes, inside traditional denominations with long histories. Um, Some of that's why I'm not part of any of those denominations, frankly. Uh, though, though maybe one day I would be. I'm not, I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but uh, denomination, historic denominations are not a foolproof way to protect from error. But we have to recognize that things can get real weird in the land of independent churches where there's absolutely no governing authority over them. How do we make sure things don't get weird? How do we know things aren't weird right now? <laughs> Sometimes it feels weird. Those are good questions to ask, too. And these questions are part of the reason why we're going to start just a little four-week series called, I think we had to go back one slide, Theology and Community. Theology and Community. What does that title even mean? Well, first, what's theology? What's theology? Theology is the study of God. It's formulating what we believe about him based on what he's revealed. Uh, theologian John Frame, he's one of my favorites, he helpfully emphasizes the pragmatic side of this. He says, theology is the application of the Word of God by persons to all areas of life. And I like that, because what that implies is that theology doesn't stop just with propositional truths about God, though those are vitally important. It actually becomes, it it turns pragmatic, it turns into what you actually do in your day-to-day life. Are you willing to submit to and apply all the truths that you've come to believe? in the day in, day out of your life. <clears throat> no one, here, here's a crucial point, no one gets to escape being a theologian. You've probably heard that before. No one escapes it. Even the atheistic claim that there is no God or the, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, agnostic, the agnostic claim that there might be a God, but the evidence for him is just, is just incredibly difficult to discern. Those are theological statements. Those are theological statements. There is a theology behind those, either no God or blurry God or whatever. Since belief informs action, and it always does, what you, what you believe in the deepest parts of yourself will always spill out into how you live. The Christian God cares deeply that his people believe what is good and what is beautiful and 
what is true. And those things cannot be separated. He, believe, he cares deeply about what you think. He cares deeply about what you believe. He cares deeply about what you say. And he cares deeply about what you do. And that's all wrapped up in your theology. So if you're a Christian, you are called to be a theologian. And I don't mean an academic one. I don't know if any of us in this room are called to be academic theologians. So that might be useful to have one or two around. Um, Praise God for academic theologians. The, 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 the church at large needs them. We need them to help us. But not everyone's called to be one of those. I don't think I am. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. That's not my point. But, but a theologian nonetheless, and a faithful one, you are called to be. In your sphere, in your world, in your context, you are called to be a faithful theologian. So, as a church... We can't escape the call to do theology. But why in community? What, what is that? Why don't we just call this uh, theology series or something? That'd be really creative. Um, why in community? That's because like everything in the Christian life, every single thing, learning and testing our theology is not meant to be done alone. As we often say, Jesus did not save us into a vacuum, but into a family, into a community, into the household of faith. We are not meant to figure these things out by ourselves. It's meant to be done in community. We must be sharpened, refined, tested by the diverse body of believers with different gifts and strengths and experiences, all striving to come under Jesus' lordship in every area of life. If you want to be a responsible theologian, you can't do it by yourself. Or once again, it's going to get weird. Because in your heart of hearts, just as in mine, we're weird. <laughs> Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful. So, give you an overview of this series. We're going to start, we're going to do four weeks. It's going to be quick. I know for some of you, this is like painful. You're like, oh my gosh, this sounds like the most boring thing. I'll see you in five weeks. Um, <laughs> Try not to do that. Some of you are like chomping at the bit. Um, but no, I know, I know uh, for some of you this, this is a stretch. But nonetheless, here's where we're going. I want to give you the roadmap. We're going to start with the most authoritative kind of at, like realms of community for helping us form our theology and then move to the less authoritative but no less important. So first, this week, today, we start with Jesus. And we're going to make the case that, that the First, an absolute foundational place and person uh, from whom we learn theology is Jesus. And if you're a Christian, that's probably <laughs> not a controversial thing to say. If you're not a Christian, that might sound a little circular, uh, but, but maybe we'll address that too as we go. Uh, but we start with Jesus. We're going to say the first place we go to to build our theology is Jesus. Second, next week, Josh is going to talk to us about uh, doing theology in community with the biblical authors, with the Bible itself and the Holy Spirit. And this idea that the Holy Spirit helped author the Bible that we have and the Holy Spirit helps us, helps illuminate it for us. He helps us come to it as we, as we yield more and more of ourselves to him. He actually helps us. God with us, helping us discern and, and understand these ancient books that are so perplexing to us. So the Bible and the Spirit will be part two. 
And that's, you know, for, for, uh, for most Christians, I think, I think that's very non-controversial. You go, okay, yeah, of course, Jesus, the Bible, Holy Spirit, working along with the Bible. Week three, we want to self-consciously talk about learning from, with our brothers and sisters from across time and geography. So what is the, what is the role of tradition and church history? The creeds. You ever think much about the creeds? A lot of times, non-denominational Protestants are skeptical of things like creeds. Like, oh, that seems weird. That, that seems Catholic or something like that. But they're vitally important. Are they scripture? No, they are not scripture. But they're crucially important. So, uh, and what does it mean? What, you know, Christians are, like American Christians, even white Christians, even Western Christians are a minority of Christians in the planet right now. Did you know that? What does it mean to humbly learn from our brothers and sisters from across the world, the majority of whom are in the global south in, in contexts that are not much like ours? But you can immediately see, like, disciples of Jesus working this stuff out in community in all these different contexts is massively helpful for helping us see where has our cultural context polluted the gospel? What are the things we just assume are there in the text that are not? Our brothers and sisters in different contexts and then in different periods of time across church history help us clear away that debris and see what is that one true faith for all time. So we have to listen. And we're going to. At least we're going to start to. And then number four, the last week we're going to talk about theology in the context of the local church. Theology in this community. Why is it crucial that as we work out our theology we do it shoulder to shoulder with other actual flesh and blood people that are in our lives, we're in their lives, they know us, we know them, uh, and we're actually processing it together. So that's it, four weeks from Jesus all the way down to our local church here at Door of Hope Northeast. That's where we're going. And, and, and the hopes for us by the end of the series are a few things, probably could say more than this, but one, we wanna know what we mean when we talk about historic Christian orthodoxy. What does it mean to be orthodox? What does it mean to believe the orthodox faith? What does it mean to depart from that faith? Why is it important? Number two, we want to know how to build our theology and evaluate theological claims that come to us without being blinded by our own cultural lenses. We want to be able to sniff out, like, when is something a distortion? And that gets really tricky when those distortions come in ways that we are constantly conditioned to, to think in from birth. When we're in this water, it's so difficult to, to discern and, and, and pick up on how do we get outside of it to say, whoa, like, that thing may be comfortable to me, but it's not of Jesus. It's not of Jesus. And then third, we want to know how to relate to and learn from Jesus' church across the world. We don't, you know, a danger of being a non-denominational Protestant church is that we can very easily think of, of the whole of Christian experiences only here doing things the way that we do. We want to actually have the humility to say, no, that God is doing so much out there in traditions that look like us, in traditions that do not look like us. And we want to be able to learn humbly and take the best of what we find out there and make our contributions to it as well. But today, we're going to start briefly, briefly, the only place we can start, which is with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christian theology, if it's to be truly Christian, has to start with Christ. I hope that's obvious. There is no higher authority or more trustworthy starting place for our theology than the Son of God who took on human flesh, Jesus himself. 
And so I just want to look at a few places in Scripture that help us see this clearly and basically, basically make three arguments for you. And we're going to do it quickly. We're going to do it quickly. And frankly, some of this really builds on what we talked about last Sunday on Easter. So I don't want to unduly repeat a lot of that, especially this first one. Here's the first reason Jesus has to be our first starting place. It's a historical reason. That's that Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19 says this. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even to be found misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Those are hard words from Paul. Paul, Paul is arguing here, obviously, against with people who are, who are denying the possibility of the resurrection, the possibility of anyone being raised from the dead. Um, and what he's saying is, look, if, if that's true, then, and Christ wasn't raised, then, <laughs> then we are the biggest idiots on the planet. Like, why would we give ourselves over to this religion that, especially in their time and day, only entailed persecution, social ostracism, difficulty, uh, all kinds of these moral and, and ethical commands, you know, related to living out and being a preview of the kingdom of God here in this life that are difficult, that don't come naturally to any of us. I don't know if they come naturally to you. If the commands of Jesus come naturally to you, come talk to me. I need to know your secret, okay? I really need to know it. Why would anyone, like sometimes you hear that. It's like you hear this stuff that's like, oh man, well Jesus, like his vision is just so beautiful that like even if he wasn't real, even if this resurrection stuff was a lie, I would still follow him because, like, it's just so good. And I say no way. <laughs> I do affirm wholeheartedly that his teachings are good. Absolutely. But if, none of, if he didn't raise from the dead, you can believe this stuff all you want. You can follow it all you want. You can try to be the best person you can be, and you are still going to burn up like everyone else. And the person who, who pillages and plunders, you know, and tries to literally strangle life for all it can be, like, there's no consequence awaiting them. There's no reason you ought not to be that person. There's no moral imperative <laughs> for, for anything if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. I know that's an extreme statement, but I, I, I would, uh, let's go get a cup of coffee and talk about it if, uh, if you disagree. It could be fun. Um, Paul, Paul is saying, if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, we are of all most to be pitied. And I think he's right. But as we spent quite a bit of time arguing last week, we're not going to get too much into it right now. He did walk out of that tomb. He did. He did. And he appeared to many witnesses, over 500. And people who hated him became his servants who loved him. His brothers and his sisters, his, his actual siblings, his actual siblings, 
who more than anyone would have had a front row seat to his idiocy, if there had been any, came to worship him as God. And the scriptures recorded names and <laughs> general addresses of people who saw the risen Christ walking around after his public execution. He did raise from the dead. And if he did, that validates everything that he said and he did. If he claimed to be the son of God and he died and we never saw from him again, we'd say that's just one more crazy dude from history making a power grab. But if he walked out of the tomb, he's the son of God. He's the son of God. He's the eternal son of God. He's the king. He's the savior. He's the Christ. And that validates everything else that he said and did. That means we have to listen to him. But this also means if he did walk out of that tomb, listen to this. This ties back to the community. That means he's alive now. We don't just believe like, yeah, he was alive for a time and then he kind of vanished off into nothingness. He ascended to the Father. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting to return. But he's not nowhere right now. We don't know in the spiritual realm exactly you know, how that plays out. I can't point somewhere on a, on a map or something. But it means he's alive, which means that at right now, we are very much literally doing theology with him. The first person we do theology with in community is the risen Jesus who's alive, who is with us, who is communicating with us, who wants to be near to us, who receives our prayers, who sends his spirit to lead and to guide and direct us. We're not doing it in a vacuum. We get to do our theology and, and build it and grow it and critique it with the living Christ next to us. He wants us to come to him in prayer for discernment as we're doing this. Amen? Amen. It's reason one. Let's go on to reason two. This is more of a biblical reason. This will be more or less convincing to you, uh, depending on how more or less convinced you are of the power and authority and trust trustworthiness of the scriptures. I submit to you they are fully trustworthy. Luke 24, 27. That's a beautiful passage if you haven't spent time in it recently. Uh, all of Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. After Jesus is raised from the dead, there's some disciples walking this, walking this road. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> they, they, Jesus starts talking with them, and they don't recognize him. And they start talking about this stuff that's happened. Like, yeah, we thought he was the Christ, but he died. So, that, so like, this whole thing is kind of up in smoke. And they have this great conversation. It's all worth reading, but I just want to highlight this verse, verse 27. Um, Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the center point of everything that God has revealed in the Bible. He's speaking specifically about the Old Testament here. All the scriptures, beginning with Moses, beginning with the Torah, and going all the way up through the prophets, that shorthand for the whole thing. He told them in all the scriptures the things that were concerning himself. He says, everything is connected to me. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Jesus is the thematic conclusion to these threads that had been started. Jesus is the answer to the questions that are continually posed. There is no part of the Old Testament that doesn't in some form or fashion point to Jesus Christ. Similarly, the New Testament that was going to be written after this looks back 
to Jesus. So if the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus and its deepest meaning is found in him, the New Testament, written after his life and death and resurrection and ascension, is looking back on the life of Jesus. And it's expositing what he did and what it means. What it means for you. What it means for these new church communities that that are starting up. What it means when you're persecuted. What it means when you're a cultural outsider. What it means when there's conflict in the family. So the statement applies no less to the New Testament that was going to form. Jesus is the center of it all. The old looks forward, the new looks back. He is the center, he's the middle. Therefore, you want to do theology, you can't do it without Jesus. You will misread your Bible. God has arranged the written word around his son. And we're going to see next week, Jesus has then in turn used his authority to turn around and lend his authority and credibility to those same scriptures. The same scriptures that point to Jesus, he points back to and says, trust them, trust them. That's reason two, biblical reason. Let's look at one more reason. Reason three, this is more of a theological reason. So Grace read for us uh, those first four verses. I'm going to read it again because it's so good. First four verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance. Listen to this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And this Jesus, Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Or look at this from John 14, 5 through 9. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, listen to this, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Friends, listen to this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Third reason, you might call it the theological reason, is that the Bible declares that Jesus is God in the flesh, God made visible, God with us. What does it mean for this transcendent creator God who's triune, three persons in one? It's so complex to even start talking about it. It feels like you're about to land in error somewhere uh, to, to keep it all straight. What does it mean for that God to be translated into human terms? Jesus. What is he actually like? Okay, like this is all mysterious. What is he actually like? Jesus. What is his heart like? How does he relate to Jesus? What is is this God like when he comes in contact with with sinners? Jesus. What's he like when he comes in with religious pride and arrogance? Jesus. 
Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. It's to see God. So we think on, those, on that basis. If John's right and the writer of Hebrews is right, I submit to you that they are, then I think it's fair to say there is no higher authority to appeal to than this one who is himself the truth. The one who is the exact imprint of God's nature and glory. Amen? Amen. So, that's what that means. If any man or any woman comes to you with a word or an idea or a bit of doctrine or a bit of theology that contradicts this Jesus, you reject it. If your pastor, if this pastor, Cameron Hager, brings a word to you or a doctrine or an idea or a teaching that contradicts Jesus, you reject it. Even if he seems really trustworthy and really nice, really likes to avoid controversy, really likes to be kind, even if he's really good looking, even if he has a head full of hair, oh, bummer. Doesn't matter who it is. And I submit to you, I'm not infallible, and you ought to check every, where'd my mic go? There it is, okay. I submit to you, I've got errors somewhere. I don't know where they are, but I'll find them one day. I have found them before. I will find the next one soon enough. I promise you. Hopefully you'll find it before I do because you're looking to Jesus and you're in his word. You're immersed in his scriptures. You're praying. You know him. You don't just know about him. You know him. And you can send me a very kindly worded email when you discover my errors. But I mean it. I'm not the authority. Josh is not the authority. Joel, one of our others, he's not the authority. The Pope isn't the authority. Tim Keller is not the authority. Whoever, your favorite Christian author, your favorite celebrity preacher, whatever, they're not the authority. Only Jesus. And I love all that stuff. So many people I admire and respect in the faith I've learned so much from. This is not, you know burn your heroes moment or whatever. I'm just saying, we are, none of us are the king, but he is. So we submit to him, him first and him alone. Amen? Amen. Yeah. So, we could summarize these points with the words of God the Father. We just read this story in Mark. And now I can't off the top of my head remember uh, the distinctions between how Mark records it and Matthew records it versus Luke. Uh, but I, I've got Matthew's account here. The transfiguration story. You remember this. Middle of the gospel according to Mark. Jesus takes three of the disciples up on the mountain and he's transfigured. His glory shones forth. His, his clothes turn the brightest white you could ever imagine. He's seen for who he really is. Not just as the humble peasant, though he is. He chose to come that way into this world in humility but also as the shining, glorious, visible, radiant God, Son of God. And there was this booming voice from heaven. You remember that? Booming voice from the cloud, the voice of God declared over Jesus for the disciples to hear. And he said, what? This is my Son, 
whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And then a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's all I'm trying to say. Listen to him. Our first and greatest authority for determining what we believe about God or doing theology is the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, come to be with us. And if it is true that this Jesus is alive, reigning at the right hand of God, then he is the first layer of community we have for this project of doing theology. We get to do theology in community with the living, risen Christ who walks with us. We construct our beliefs with him alongside him, looking to him, listening to him, under him. Anything that we believe that we come to see contradicts him, we reject. And anything that we believe that we gain confidence truly represents him, then we protect it. But you know the thing about Jesus, maybe, maybe a reaction you're having right now is like, oh gosh, like, yeah, I probably have error too. Like, I don't know, I'm no theologian, whatever. Have I, have, am I holding some untrue thought? Have I taught something? Oh my gosh, what have I done? My last Facebook post was a little salty. Uh, I mentioned Jesus. Even in our theological errors, which we all have, know this. There's grace. There's grace. He's so kind. And he's so merciful. And he died. <laughs> he died on the cross for every bit of our errors, every bit of our sin, every bit of our shortcoming. Even if we've uh, said the most outlandish thing, even if we've misrepresented him gravely, even if we've brought dishonor to the name of Jesus, which we all will do at some point, he died for that. Knowing that full well, he went to the cross for you on your behalf. Yes, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, but he laid down his life to bring you to the Father. So your reaction here, I don't, yes, healthy, healthy uh, bit of reverence for when we talk about God and as we're trying to determine what we believe and all these things, but man, hear the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the generosity of this Jesus. It's a good thing we start with him, right? <laughs> as we're doing this. And that he's not some other way. He's so good, friends. He has so much grace and patience for us. Patience, thank God he has patience for me as a pastor. Thank God. This isn't much of a conclusion, but I'm going to say that's all I have for right now. I think we should pray, and I think we should, I think we should worship this Jesus. Amen?